Lent is underway, <laughs> and after a determined start, maybe the Lenten menus are feeling a little shopborn, and your family could really use a boost of inspiration, some insights, history, and amazing stories of the life of the Church. Today, it is my joy to welcome one of my heroes in the faith and in homeschooling, Dr. Scott Hahn, here to tell us about his new book, The Lenten Cookbook. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik. Today I'm talking with Dr. Scott Hahn about his new book, The Lenten Cookbook. Dr. Scott Hahn is the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read Scripture from the heart of the Church. Dr. Hahn has been married to Kimberly for 42 years. They have six kids kids and 21 grandkids. They also have one son ordained to the Diocese of Steubenville, Father Jeremiah Hahn. As the author and editor of over 40 popular and academic books, Dr. Hahn's works include best-selling titles such as Rome Sweet Home, The Lamb's Supper, and Hail Holy Queen. His most recent releases are titled Hope to Die, The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, and It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion, now available at stpaulcenter.com. And that's in the show notes. You can also find Dr. Hahn at scotthahn.com. And I have ordering links for all three of his latest books in the show notes. Uh, welcome, Dr. Hahn. It is truly a joy to have you with us today. Thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be with you. Oh, bless you for, for making the time. Um, today we're talking about your new book, which you co-wrote with David Geyser. I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, so you can correct me on that. An award-winning chef and a former Vatican Swiss guard. Would you mind, just for our video audience, just holding up the, the cover of your book? There sure. it is. Beautifully produced. Oh, it looks just gorgeous. I cannot wait to get my copy. So, um... Just uh, say a little about the history of how this book came together. Well, it was last year. I got called by a mutual friend of David and mine, uh, Charlie McKinney, who is the head of the Sophia Institute Press. And he's been up here to visit on a few occasions. And he proposed this idea. And I was already aware of David's work in terms of Advent and Christmas and other cookbooks, too. And so I said, let me think about it a while. And then I said, yes, <laughs> and seconds later, because it, it struck me as an obvious uh, opportunity to uh, work with David, but also with Sophia. And this is something that has emerged in my own research and writing and thinking and praying, uh, how to understand not only Lent as a penitential season, but also Lent related to Easter, like Advent is related to Christmas and how we live the new covenant as Catholics in this rhythm of feasting and fasting. And the uh, the physical side of being spiritual 
is what I discovered, you know, almost 40 years ago in the in the journey into the Catholic Church, where I became Catholic in 1986. And yet it still feels really new and fresh. I'm still discovering things that I never thought were there. And so I said to Charlie, absolutely, positively, let's go for it, you know. So even though I haven't met my co-author, David, uh, I have, I'm familiar with his work. I greatly respect it. But I also see a nice combination between the, uh, the historical, the biblical, the moral, the sacramental, but also the fact that you've got salads and collations, small meals, snacks, dinners, desserts, and all kinds of things. And so I just, I'm really excited to have this book come out. Oh, this just, just excites me so much because one thing that people don't realize coming into Catholicism is that body and soul unity of human nature that we celebrate, that we're not just minds and spirits, that, that our bodies are an important part of our nature as Catholics, as human beings uh, made in the image of God. Um, can you just, I just am thrilled that that was such a strong connection for you coming into the church and that as a lifelong Catholic, so impacted by yours and Kimberly's work over the years, in fact, discovered you less than a year into my reversion back to the faith, that it's just such a delight to be with you now and kind of um, teasing out what what's important about that, of of being people who, you, you used an expression, uh, fasting and minor feasting. Maybe you can break that open for us because it can be a little confusing for us. But But anyway, just celebrating both together is such a joy. Sure. Well, let me just briefly explain this because um, Lent might strike people as being such a penitential season that you really can't indulge at all. Well, you can, but the fact is there really is a sense in which you can enjoy eating in Lent just as you do in Advent, that there is a, a penitential momentum that is meant to grow over the 40 days of Lent. But ultimately, the proportions are somewhat you know, um, in balance, because you've got 40 days of Lent, 50 days of Easter. And so all of this is preparation for celebration. And yet there is a certain joy in fasting, just as there is a joy in feasting. And so it doesn't mean that when you get to Easter, it's nothing but self-indulgence. And likewise, Lent is nothing, it is not reducible simply to self-denial. Yes, that is the preponderant notion. But at the same time, if you're going to eat less, you can still eat well, and you can still enjoy the joy of feasting as well as fasting, even if it's minor. It's a curious thing for me in doing my research that St. Benedict, who established the Benedictines in his famous and profound rule of St. Benedict, only used the word joy on one occasion in that important rule, and that was when he was speaking about Lent. Now, that struck me as counterintuitive because, no, joy belongs to Easter. Well, all his readers already knew that. But there really is a sense in which you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. Our Lady is proof of that. But you can also have joy in a season of penance because you know what's coming. God is not asking us you know, to indulge in masochism in some disordered way. No, we're conforming ourselves to Christ who fasted for 40 days in the desert. But at the same time, we recognize that this is the road to the resurrection. And I want to step back too and mention something too of the, that, that really played a, an important part in my conversion. Anybody who's 
read my stuff or heard my talks knows the centrality of covenant as the central principle in sacred scripture. And not only is it the center of scripture, but it's also the hinge in which it turns from the old covenant to the new. And covenant is seemingly forgotten by people today. It might seem to many that is like, oh, it's it's a specimen of religious jargon. Well, the fact is, it's not. You know, if I if I went on describing to you this uh, beautiful friendship that I have with a a beautiful woman, and uh, we have meals together, and we take walks together, we've had six kids together, but I omit the word marriage. <laughs> you know, I'm bound to mislead people, and when we omit the term covenant, we we mislead ourselves and other people. Because this is more than a relationship, a personal relationship. It's more than a commitment. It's more than a sacred commitment. It really is a form of sacred kinship bonds, not only that we share horizontally with fellow members of the family of God, but most importantly and most spectacularly, there's a vertical axis that unites us to God in a way that is singular and exceptional. I mean, again, I don't want to delve into theology, but let me just pause and emphasize this point. That in all of the religions of the world, there is no example, apart from the Judeo-Christian tradition, of the supreme deity allowing himself to be drawn into covenant bonds where he is bound to fulfill his covenant with us. So this is unique. But even more unique is the fact that the supreme deity, the creator of the universe, is the one who initiated it. So it isn't simply something that God, you know, allows, okay, if you really press me, I'll do it. It's the whole purpose for why he made us. And so it turns the cosmos into a temple. It turns us as creatures bearing his image and likeness into sons and daughters, but also it transforms marriage and family life into an earthly image of a heavenly mystery for which we were all made. And at the center of covenant is meals, sacrifices to be sure, but sacrifices that are always ordered to getting together as a family and doing what families do, and that is feasting. And so the idea of sacrifice is written into the fabric of who we are as Catholics, and especially what we do as families, you know, during Lent, during Advent, but at the same time, it's always a means to an end. There's nothing masochistic about it. And so the joy of fasting leads to a kind of joy even when we have only minor feasts or feast days during Lent. But I just find that uh, Easter is still a time to reflect upon the fact that Jesus suffered for our sins. He rose for our justification. But let, we don't forget that we're sinners during Easter, just like we don't forget that there is an element of joy in the midst of Lent. And so it is the spiritual balance, again, the physical side of being spiritual. And that that's what the incarnation established 2,000 years ago, but it's what the sacraments maintain. And one last thought, you know, one of my favorite writers is a Jewish rabbi back in the 1800s named Rabbi Raphael Samson Hirsch. He's generally recognized as the, the founder of modern Orthodox Judaism. And he was asked famously, uh, why don't Orthodox Jews have a catechism like other religious groups? And he thought about it and he said, we do. Our calendar is our catechism. Mm. And it just struck me when I read that. 
you know, and he's not just talking about Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles. He's talking about the sabbatical rhythm that we live every day, every week, every month, and throughout our lives, and as well as the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And we have all of that and more with saints and with the celebration of the birth of Jesus, his death and resurrection. And it's like this ends up easily sliding into doctrine, Catholic talking points, things that we profess and affirm and teach, but seldom ponder sufficiently to reawaken a sense of childlike wonder, like, seriously, God became man, an infant? He dies on the cross? He comes in the form of a wafer? You know, it's amazing how unamazed we are. And so Lent is this opportunity, this invitation from heaven and from Mother Church for the children to take the routines and to live them more deeply. And so this is what I think the book is all about. Mm. Was there anything in the process? I mean, you're so knowledgeable. Was this for you sifting for the right connections to present? Or was there anything surprising or particularly delightful that was revealed to you in the process of pulling together new research or anything? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it was familiar territory because scripture is filled with fasting. Uh, you, You can go back and you can see it in the prophet Joel, as we'll read in the lectionary. We also see Jonah's preaching, evoking this fasting and repentance on the part of the king of Nineveh. He's not named, but we know that he's the arch villain because the king of Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was already targeting Jonah's own homeland of Israel. And that's why Jonah was so reluctant to even risk repentance on their part. He wanted to get to Nineveh, but in 41 days to survey the ruin, and when he preaches and they repent and they fast, he says, I knew you were merciful and gracious. And so the lessons of hearing the gospel, responding in terms of repentance and fasting, you know, this is true not only for the Jews in the Old Testament, but for the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And there are examples, too, of Moses fasting for 40 days like our Lord, Elijah going all the way from his hometown in Samaria down to Horeb fasting for 40 days. And so the biblical material was sort of like, yeah, that's old hat. That feels like an old shoe. It just fits so nicely. But I'll be honest, there were two entirely new things that I found, two sets of things. On the one hand, I didn't realize how much the ancients, apart from scripture, outside of Israel, recognized fasting as something essential. I have quotes in the book, but many I left out from Hippocrates, the founder of medicine, the Hippocratic Oath and all of that. He considered fasting to be this essential medicine, this the greatest remedy. Uh, he speaks of fasting as an interior physician, how we can actually bring about health ourselves. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all praise the benefits of fasting. Uh, it's the building block of self-discipline and virtue for Aristotle and his ethics. And not only virtue, but physical strength, moral character. And Pythagoras also spoke of this. And I could go on. I just didn't realize that the ancients, who had nothing more than natural law, recognized that virtue is not achieved apart from self-denial, but that self-denial is ordered to self-mastery. And as Catholics, we know that you can't, you can't give what you don't really possess. And so 
Self-possession is the purpose that leads to self-giving, self-donating love. And once you see it lined up, you're like, well, yeah, obviously, it was hiding in plain view. And so those discoveries were exciting for me. But I'll be honest, I didn't know much about ember days. I didn't know about rogation days. I didn't know about the black fast. I didn't know about you know other things like dry eating. And so to discover that it's not just you know, fasting on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and abstaining from meat on Fridays throughout Lent and really throughout the whole year. It's the tradition of fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays that goes back to the first and second centuries. And the monastic tradition that has been lived so well, so arduously for millennia is something I believe is it's sort of like beyond the experience base that I've had. And so even though I've studied church history, church history texts never get into the spiritual disciplines that made Cluny the heart of Christendom for literally hundreds and hundreds of years with thousands of monasteries spread throughout Europe. We often idealize about the high Middle Ages, but that would have been impossible apart from the Benedictines of Cluny and the thousands of monasteries that basically renewed all of Europe but how do they do it? Well, everything was wrapped around the Eucharist, but as the bridegroom is present, you don't fast, but when the bridegroom is absent, you do. And so written into the very fabric of monastic life, and these monasteries became magnets for families to move closer outside of the decaying cities, closer to the thriving monasteries, where you could get education, you'd get medicine and care, but you could also have worship recenter your lives as families, as farmers in union with the church, but not just the secular clergy. And, and so this was for me a sustained eureka moment. And I should have known these things, but there were other things too, like the Rouen Cathedral and the Butter Tower that I read about on page 10, and how you have dispensations for secular clergy, but also for ordinary Catholics, so that if they're not healthy, if they're not strong enough, or if they just don't want to fast, they can pay for a dispensation. And they built the tower in the Rouen Cathedral, the butter tower, by allowing butter. But I'm like, allowing butter? I didn't know butter was ever off limits. And then I discovered <laughs> meat, fish, you know, eggs, wine, oil, dairy, you know. These were the things that not only the monks, but even ordinary Catholic lay people were sort of, sort of supposed to give up. And uh, I'm like, time out. <laughs> you know, in 1966, you have Pope Paul VI issuing this apostolic constitution penitentiary saying, okay, Catholics don't have to, you know, abstain from meat. You know, the bishops will decide. Well, his reasoning was probably simple, that in the third world, and in Vatican II, we had so many bishops from the third world, they don't eat meat Monday through Thursday, you know, or at least many areas don't. And so let's adapt the, the penance. But the takeaway in the West was, hey, we're free from all the discipline. And so now, you know, 40, 50 years later, we're waking up and realizing that was never the intention of Paul VI. It was never the purpose of God in issuing this apostolic letter. And so we don't have to wait for the uh, authorities to impose these new rules upon us. It can be from below. It can be from the ground up. And I find that Catholic families, especially homeschool families, are 
the wellspring of renewal uh, for the diocese, for the parish, for the culture. And so as we get a book like this and we learn how to fast, we also learn how to enjoy minor feasts, collations, salads, desserts, and that kind of thing. I really do believe that in the process, we'll discover it's not just for the ecclesiastical elite, the monks, the nuns, the hermits. It really is for the ordinary Catholics living everyday life in the middle of the world to become like leaven in Lent. And so, you know, I, I really enjoyed the learning you know, I brought in the scripture, but I'm discovering the ancients. I'm also discovering the monks. I'm discovering the church discipline. And I won't even, don't even get me started on Eastern Christians because the Orthodox and the Eastern Catholics have in some ways perfected this slightly more than we have. And I think most Orthodox Christians and most Eastern Rite Catholics are aware of the rigors the longer fast and this kind of thing. I didn't mean to go on so long, but uh, I'm really still excited about all of this stuff. Oh, it's and to, punning intentionally here. It's all quite delicious. Um, and I also just want to say, I'm glad you linked with the Eastern Church because my sense, even though I'm not very knowledgeable about it, is that they have a real respect for ordinary mysticism in the life of the faithful. And so that connection, I would think, with valuing fasting and those kinds of bodily disciplines might, might be part of why that's so. I agree. I very much agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, as you think about how the book is set up and how it's meant to work together, what would you say would be some good ways for a homeschooling family to enjoy this book together? Well, the first part is my section where I go through the joy of fasting. And I'll be honest, I think the opening would be a delight to families to read and to discover because most people don't know about Irma Rombauer. In 1930, she suddenly became a widow in her 50s uh, in the beginning of the Depression, but she had been part of the elite, the high society in St. Louis, enjoying all of these uh, banquets. And then her, her husband takes his own life, and she overcomes the Depression by taking mimeograph sheets of the recipes of the banquets, putting them together and producing what we now know as the joy of cooking. The runaway bestseller of the 20th century that sold, I think, 18 million copies, nine editions, and it was like out of the ashes, out of the sorrow. And it was not a Catholic thing that she was doing, but it, it took down from the elite to the ordinary families of America the fact that it isn't just meat and potatoes. We can spend a little extra time preparing you know, exquisite meals that can be done round relatively easily. And she revolutionized cooking in American family life. I think something like this is designed to do the same thing in Catholic family life. And so as you go through the joy of fasting, the introduction, and then modern practices, the traditions of Lent, fasting through the year, as well as traditional fasting and a substitution list, you know, suddenly the, the table is set for the main part of the book. That's all 50 pages of material that is meant to instruct and inspire. But the recipes that David has, as I mentioned, you have breakfast, you have soups, you have salads, you have small meals, you have main dishes, you have breads. And this man knows how to make you uh, savor great meals, but also, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I have heard now from dozens of people that as they have prepared these meals, they're like, this is the real deal. This is really how 
to enjoy but not indulge. And so it's a kind of one-two punch, I suppose you could say. That's a nice distinction to to really give God glory in our senses. I remember listening to your talk many years ago about your conversion and how in your experience of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass as a Protestant, just kind of in the back, you realize this is why God gave me a body. And, And I think... Um, Protestants may misunderstand, you know, what I've heard speakers call the smells and bells of Catholicism, that we use our senses to transcend the ordinary experience of our lives, to meet God in those those places that are kind of almost indescribable, uh, and yet we meet them there. Um, can you just leave us with whatever final thoughts you'd like us to take away with how this book can bless our family lives and and what we might do differently as a result? Sure. You know, the thing that comes to my mind, just as you were asking the question, was we're in the year C, where the Gospel of Luke is front and center. And and so, for the rest of the year, we're going to be hearing on Sundays and feast days the Gospel of Luke. And I think a lot of people recognize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, overlap. About 93% of Mark is found in Matthew or in Luke. And Luke is distinctive, though, because Luke presents Jesus as fellowshipping with people so that the message of mercy that is central to the gospel of Luke is lived out in meals. There are 10 meal scenes in Luke's gospel, seven of which are unique to Luke. And so mercy as the message of the gospel shows us that the reality of the kingdom is really meant to be lived in the context of fellowship meals. Now, obviously, the climax, uh, number eight after the seven, is the Eucharist. And Luke's institution narrative for the Eucharist is longer than Matthew and Mark combined. It's the fullest version by far. But Luke alone has meals nine and ten, the Emmaus meal, and how it is that he's made known in the breaking of the bread. Well, breaking the bread is not exactly steak and lobster. you know. And so, in the midst of minor or modest meal taking, we can find Christ. And so I think, you know, in coordinating this with the gospel of Luke, we find our Lord in family life, but especially when we gather around the table. And I think all of us have heard anecdotes about, you know, how few families gather around the table and actually enjoy more than one or two meals a week. Well, every day we should enjoy at least one together. And in the process if grace builds on nature, let grace renew just the, the human nature that we share as families. We have six kids, as you mentioned in the introduction, and talk about diversity. And yet it, it's a diversity that used to feel like it was threatening family unity. But now we find, though, their personalities, when we gather to share a meal, they deepen and they enrich our unity. And, you know, it, it, it always takes work, but it's always worth it. Wow. That's such a wonderful and reassuring note. To, to end on because we do struggle and get in the weeds of day-to-day life and the conflicts and the difficulties of managing different personalities. But to find that God has his eye on us and that there's a greater unity that he's knitting together over time is just beautiful, like he had a recipe in mind from the beginning. 
Amen. <laughs> Amen. Uh, uh, Dr. Hahn, cannot thank you enough. Everybody, please check out the Lenten Cookbook. Order it as soon as you possibly can. And take a look at the ordering links for Hope to Die and It is Right and Just, Dr. Hahn's new books. And check out the St. Paul Center. Get on their newsletter. Get your weekly uh, boost on what the Sunday Gospel is about. And Dr. Hahn has a spectacular podcast. Again, thank you, Dr. Hahn just for taking the time. You're most welcome, Lisa. Thank you, and keep up the great work. Oh, thank you. God bless you. And everybody, please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Welcome to the Thriving Catholic Homeschool Blueprint. My name is Paula Siskinik. I'm the co-founder of the Catholic Homeschool Network, conferences, and community. If you are starting out to think about homeschooling, maybe you're just curious about it, perhaps you transitioned from a brick and mortar school, or you're a homeschool veteran like myself, you have come to the right place because together we're gonna to create a thriving homeschool that's tailored to the uniqueness of your family and results in lifelong learners. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing, God never changes, Patience obtains all things. Nothing is wanting to him who possesses God. God alone suffices. And dear Blessed Mother, please pray for all these families. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. In the first two videos, I taught you about getting super clear on your educational goals and your why. Why do I homeschool? Why do I homeschool these children and this year? It will set you um, on the right path. I shared what's possible when you lay that cornerstone principle of the one goal per child per year. Well, today I want to show you how to create the roadmap for each child. You know that day-to-day -day of your thriving homeschool life? So I present to you, I have them right here, these planning grids, okay? Um, you will see that these are in my free Get Ready to Thrive Homeschool Guide, which you can download right now. They were created from the hundreds of consults, the coaching sessions I have given over these past 20 plus years and homeschooling my own children. Again, they are located in the Get Ready to Thrive in your homeschool free guide. And if you've not downloaded a free copy, yes, you can click on the button and then you can download the worksheets. Now, it's okay to keep watching. You don't have to download them now. You can download them later. You know, that's the beauty of a recorded video. And I hope you will come back to watch this over and over again. Because this is step three in my blueprint. This is where we get down to the nitty gritty. And if you're kind of that super planner like me, this is a really fun step. So step one would be print out one grid for each child in your family. Now the first subject or item to add into that grid, and this is the grid for each child for this coming year, please add the one goal per child that you wrote down from the previous 
video and the worksheets that you did. I can't say it enough. It's so vital that that one goal lays the foundation for that super important, real feeling of success you want your child to feel and that you want to see growth this year and they want to see growth this year. This is the one subject, you see, that's going to get attention every day, especially on those hard days when you need to pare down the workload. It's the one subject you pick up first when you get derailed. As any homeschooler will attest, you will have hard days and days that will get derailed. We'll plan for it. This grid helps. You will notice that there are three versions. I have three versions for the three main groups of homeschooling years. There's the primary years, that's K to three, the middle school years, four to eight, and high school years, nine to 12. The subjects and frequency that you do each one of those subjects in those three different areas, they vary because the demands and the requirements for the different age levels vary. What I've given is just kind of a general guideline for these grade levels. I'll see you in the next video, and may God bless you abundantly. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you, and thank you for joining us.